We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. I am Brian Scott Rippy. Today, we are continuing our season preview series. Today's installment is Auburn up next on the docket. So we have Jordan D. Hill of the Opelika Auburn News. Good conversation, been on the show before, good guy, good beat writer. I got into a lot of different stuff, Bo Bo Nix's development and what is a very important year three for him, kind of finally has a guy pushing him in LSU transfer, TJ Finley. I got into how Brian Harson has handled the honeymoon period, what's it like taking a job in the same state as the greatest dynasty perhaps the sport has ever seen, expectations in year one. Some defensive stuff after a really uncharacteristically soft year for Auburn defensively, particularly on the interior defensive line, where teams just kind of ran all over them. So Derek Mason in there to kind of rectify things now, probably a little bit more talent and uh, health than they had a year ago. So good conversation, some big picture stuff as well about what's a success for Auburn in year one of the Brian Harson era and some other things. Uh, before we get to that, I do have one quick note. So I left my podcast microphone or my normal podcast microphone I should say um at my girlfriend's house after the Sunday show with Weldon just your classic uh podcast guy shacker story you got some folks out here leaving shirts earrings socks underwear whatever I'm just leaving microphones left and right as a paper trail so uh sorry about that we're on a little different setup than normal kind of the old setup it sounds fine I've done plenty of shows with it before but uh one thing I have learned it recently is not much gets past the old rubble glove family. You guys are pretty sharp in that regard. So if it sounds like slightly different, I just wanted to give you a quick heads up. We'll be back to normal uh, here for Mailbag Friday as I will go retrieve said microphone, but just wanted to give you a quick note on that. So before we get to Jordan Hill, wanted to remind you. Podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, Glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. They're the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry through years of wisdom and experience. Here's the deal. If you're going into football season blind, you're going to end up paying the man more than the man pays you. With Skybox, you can flip the script and you can rob the house. There you, you pay them a fee. They give you picks. Those picks hit and you profit. It's pretty simple. So you need to check these guys out heading into football season. They're doing a NASCAR giveaway right now, or NASCAR promo right now, I should say, where if you sign up for NASCAR package in the month of August and use the promo code NASCAR, you get 30% off. And that's in addition to the 20% off you'd get using the Rippy Rights 
promo code, which is you just type in the word Rippy, last name, R-I-P-P-E-E. You need to go check these guys out. They have month-long passes. You could try it for a week. You could do a daily pass. I would recommend just doing the year-long all sports. It's going to pay for itself and then some. But as football season comes and nears, you need to check out Skybox Sports Picks. Just give them a try for a week. Do a daily pass. I promise you you're going to return profit. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. They've got a couple articles uh, coming out about how to make you a smarter gambler, and they give you that for free. Hard to beat it. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Y'all know the deal. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, you get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's rippyrights.substack.com. You get newsletters three to five times a week and you get discounted meats. Not LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Oxford is lucky to have it. It's absolutely the best place in Mississippi and the world for that matter to get meat. Go check them out. All kinds of sausages, lane train special, Keith Carter special, bacon wrap fillets, all kinds of fresh seafood. I'm telling you, don't go to Kroger. For your grilling needs, you need to go to LB's. Greg wants to put the best product available and enhance your grilling experience. I promise you he will do that for you. Greg Caters, you need to go check him out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Here is Jordan Hill. All right, we now welcome on friend of the program, Jordan D. Hill, Auburn beat writer for the Opelika Auburn News. Do people say that backwards? I was looking at that earlier, and I swear for years I've said Auburn Opelika. Is that a common thing, or is that just me? Oh, yeah. I get it all the time. I just roll with it. I'm like, hey, man. And also, to be fair, OAN, maybe not the best abbreviation at this point. So, AON may be better. We may need to flex and maybe look into that. We'll have to call in Mike Gundy to see what he, his thoughts are on the matter. Absolutely. That was the, uh, that was the worst intro, but if you listen to this podcast, that is nothing, uh, nothing foreign to this show. I appreciate the time. I know you're busy uh, camp rolling along as usual. Uh, continuing on with our season preview uh, package, series, whatever you want to call it. I've invented this content segment. No one has ever had an opposing beat writer on before to talk about uh, you know, opponent previews and such. So very original segment idea here. But we're rolling along. Auburn up next on the schedule. Ole Miss gets them in late October. Let's. I'm trying to think of the best place to start. New coach. I don't really know what like expectations you call it. I guess we'll start here. What is the honeymoon period for Brian Harson been like so far in terms of just kind of how he's ingratiated himself with you know fan base media? It's it's interesting. He's coming from a quote unquote group of five school, but. Boise State's not your average group of five schools. So he's used to kind of dealing with maybe some of the big boy aspects of a program. What's the first, you know, five, six months been like? I think for the most part, it's been pretty smooth. You know, I think he said all the right things and, and said, you know, what the expectations are, which, you know, according to Brian Harson, is to consistently contend for national championships. And that's really what he needs to say because that's why Gus Malzahn is no longer here. Yeah, you, you know, there are certainly things you could have criticized uh, Gus for, and, and obviously um, there was a lot of success while Gus was at Auburn and he never had a losing season, which, you know, you think about firing a coach who's never had a losing season, um, you better have someone who's ready to take it to the next level. And when that firing was made and, and there was the opening, Alan Green, who's the athletic director, talked about uh, needing to contend more consistently on the national level. So Harson's come in and, and really – um, sounded that alarm and, and you know I don't think he's setting expectations way too high to say you know oh well if we you know if we're not in a New Year's Six Bowl or, or playing for a title it's a bust first year but 
um, he's really harped on setting the standard and, and really doing those sort of things. Really, for the most part, his first few months, I think, um, if you look at it from, say, the fans' perspective, has been pretty smooth. Um, really, the only kind of pushback I've seen at all has been from SEC media days when vaccines were kind of brought up. And obviously, that's a, a hot-button issue, really, across the entire country, really. You know, it kind of transcends sports. And Harson kind of stepped back on it. And, and Auburn's not been a team that – um, has been at the forefront. Um, last we've heard, I think it's around 60% of the team has been vaccinated. And I think fans, you know, some fans are concerned because of, you know, stuff outside of sports because of that. But there are also people saying, hey, I mean, this could be an issue when we get into the football season. There could be guys that wind up um, missing. So really, I think that's been the only misstep or anything you could even say has been kind of an issue as far as Brian Harson, I think people are still excited. People are wanting to see what this looks like. That's the biggest thing. There's still a lot of questions of, of what this will actually look like on the field. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought he made two pretty shrewd coordinator hires. And we'll get to that in a second. But I'd probably be remiss if I didn't ask, what is the, if any, blowback? Not blowback, but how has Harson has Harson dealt with any of the circus whatever you want to call it that occurred before he got there because and I know that's probably more of an Alan Green question because you're talking about an AD that stood up to a pretty powerful group of boosters with the whole Kevin Steele thing has that been anything like a I don't know storylines right word but has he dealt with any of that at all because it it seemed like that was such a circus and then they made a solid hire and then it all seemed to dissipate rather quickly uh, from my perspective, I don't think he really has dealt with it. I think that when he might deal with it is once we get to that last regular season game, and if they have a poor showing against Alabama, you could maybe hear some factions voicing up and saying, this is a reason we wanted to have our hands on making this higher. Uh, you know, from the outside looking in, I think, you know, you can't really fault uh, Brian Harson's resume. He obviously did a good job at Boise State, continuing what Chris Peterson had started. You know, a lot of people obviously give credit to Chris Peterson, the success they had. But, I mean, Harson maintained it. I think he was there seven years. So, clearly, um, at a certain point, you have to give Brian Harson some credit for what they were able to do there. Um, but, so far, I think it's been smooth as far as I think everyone's sort of in line right now. Again, the point you kind of made, uh, it's sort of still a honeymoon phase. But once you get in the SEC and if this first season um, has some any kind of bumps or, or hurdles that maybe people weren't expecting, and then no matter how smoothly the start of the year goes, if you go into that Iron Bowl, which is going to be at home, which traditionally when you look at when Auburn was really successful and when they were able to hang with Alabama and beat Alabama was when it was in Jordan-Hare, uh, it's going to be seen as a real big opportunity for Brian. And if they struggle – and, uh, you know, obviously they're going to have their hands full because Alabama's going to be good again. Uh, there's probably going to be more people, you know, speaking up and saying this isn't uh, the direction we need. And, and you know, he's still going to have plenty of time, but that's the kind of thing that can get people talking going into an offseason. Last thing before we get into what he's kind of done since he's taken the job. One, I imagine that he has to have a pretty good sense of comfort in his boss kind of fighting off that wave of powerful boosters and uh, the circus, whatever you want to call it, that that became to hire him was kind of a relative outsider. I mean, he was more than qualified coach, but not a ton of experience in the South. I remember that was always when you saw his name come up for other SEC jobs, that was always like the caveat, not a ton of familiarity with the South. What would you say the overall 
let's go just letter grade because that's easier than asking you to put a dumb percentage on it. What do you figure the what did you think the approval rating was from the fan base about this hire? I'd say it was probably a B. I think that people knew that he did well. I think that people probably had expectations and some, you know, were a little higher than probably should have been as far as who they could have gone out and gotten. And that was sort of the thing when uh, the the change was made. Even us on the beat were saying, all right, well, who are you going to go get? And, uh, you know, I think that Brian, the, the really the biggest knock against Brian is that he really doesn't have ties to the Southeast. And, uh, you know, he coached for a year as offensive coordinator at Texas, spent one year at Arkansas State. Other than that, it's really been Pacific Northwest. And, you know, when you look back at the cycle, um, you know, Auburn was one of the better jobs that came open. But, you know, just seeing from the periphery other jobs, you know, you've seen like when that Arizona job opened, you could have said, okay, that makes sense for a Brian Harson. You know, it's sort of, you know, Pac-12 seemed like the, the logical next step for him. Um, but obviously, Auburn's a big job, and, and, you know, he's got an opportunity to come in here. And to the point you made a few minutes ago, too, I think his coordinator hires will be tremendously helpful because he doesn't have those southeastern ties. And, and even past that, I mean, some of the other guys on the staff, Will Friend, who has coached in the SEC for a while now, he played at Alabama and coached at Georgia, uh, coached at Tennessee. Um, so I think that has really helped him as well. So I think people probably were wanting maybe a, a bigger name, a sexier hire. I don't know who that would have been uh, realistically. I know there were some people that were wanting Lane Kiffin. I don't know if Lane would have came back to the state of Alabama to coach at Auburn. Um, but I think on the whole, people are pretty excited. And, and again, a lot of the time when you see these kind of changes, some people just want a fresh face. And Brian Harson's still a relatively young coach who's saying all the right things for the most part and, and trying to get everybody excited for the new season. And when I mentioned earlier, he, he I, I called it two shrewd coordinator hires. I guess it, does one and a half count? Because, like, I do think Derek Mason was pretty undisputably a great defensive coordinator hire. Tough situation at Vanderbilt, but those defenses for Vanderbilt, given what they were working with, were always pretty good and they were always really disciplined. And whatever you think of the Bobo hire as an offensive coordinator, you got to keep in mind that that's probably a lot more of Brian Harson's fingerprints on the offense than Bobo. He's probably hiring him for a little bit more of a quarterback development experience because that's something that Bobo has succeeded at in the past. And so we'll get to Mason in a minute. I imagine the def offensive side of the football, even though Auburn wasn't as good defensively last year, is probably where more of the question marks lie. And, you know, return all eight guys that make starts on the offensive line but I think it's probably more the skill position guys and we'll start with Bo Nix what is he's not the five-star young kid anymore that was uh you know kind of on the big stage and through the bad-ish pass that worked out in the Oregon game in the Cotton Bowl which is like a mile from my house here what are the expectations around Bo Nix and like, is it is it he needs to develop into something or is it just kind of a prove it year like what what would you say is the expectations for Bo Nix heading into this third year at Auburn? Well, I think the biggest thing is just a matter of consistency. And that's really been something that people have harped on really since Bo has been here. And, you know, to defend Bo Nix in terms of this year, I think that he is in a good position to take a step forward because of who he's working with. Brian Harson's got a background. He played quarterback at Boise, has really turned out a lot of really good quarterbacks out of Boise, especially for that being a group of five school. And then Mike Bobo also played quarterback. He played at Georgia uh, and turned out a lot of good quarterbacks while he was a quarterback's coach and later offensive coordinator at Georgia. 
Um, so he's working with guys who are really stressing fundamentals. Um, that's something before, right after uh, Mike Bobo was hired, I think it was like January or so, I tracked down a few of his former quarterbacks at Georgia, DJ Shockley, Aaron Murray. I talked about so what can Bo Nix expect, you know, from working with Mike Bobo. And really the consensus from all three was he is going to stress your fundamentals. If you can't do the fundamentals, then, you know, if you can't do the fundamentals, you're going to have problems. And I think if I'm an Auburn fan, to me, that's music to my ears because that's what's been holding Bo back. I mean, when you see his inconsistencies, it's a matter of, you know, his foot placement and, and you know, with the arm location. It's, it's, the, it's the mechanics of his game that are keeping him from, from making the passes that you expect an SEC-quality quarterback to have. And also to see a guy who, you know, as a freshman had his moments of, you know, clearly being a guy that is just coming out of high school, um, but showed you flashes of what he could be. And, and, you know, as good a coach as Gus Malzahn was in some areas, he was never known for being a quarterback developer. I mean, the most success he ever had at Auburn was with transfer quarterbacks, with Cam Newton, um, you know, with some of the other guys, Jarrett Stidham as well. These weren't guys he groomed and really kind of harped on, on the mechanics and things like that. So I think Bo has a really good opportunity with working with Mike Bobo and Brian Harson, and I think it really helps, too, that they brought in T.J. Finley. T.J.'s looked really good so far through fall camp, but – I don't see him, you know, stealing this job from Bo, but I, I truly do think he's pushing Bo, and I think that's the best thing that can happen to Bo Nix because the other quarterback that would have been the second string is Grant Loy, a guy that was at Bowling Green. I mean, you know, Grant's a decent, you know, player, and, and I'm sure, you know, that um, he's probably helpful in the room, but he wasn't going to take that job from Bo Nix. If TJ came in to fall camp and, and truly outplayed Bo, he could very well take that job. And I think that that's probably really motivated Bo and made him realize he can't slack and he's got to follow what Bobo and the coaches are saying. It's a great point you make about the mechanic side of things as well, because I mean, the really basic statistics back that up. Bo Nix, I think seven and six interceptions in his first two years, respectively. He's not a guy that turns the football over a lot, but the touchdown numbers are not huge as well, which is a little bit of a misnomer because of what Auburn's had in the running game for you know at least most or parts of the first two years he's been there what's glaring when you just look at his basic stat line is he's never had a season where he's completed 60 percent of his passes and I say never it's two but I think you're exactly right in that and then you I'm glad you brought up the TJ Finley part because that's kind of where I was going next how and this is probably not a question that's easy to answer but how long is Bo Nisha's I can't talk today. Bo's leash heading into this season because, as you mentioned, they bring in a kid at TJ Finley who you saw glimpses of at LSU. He was okay, but like you mentioned, not a guy that's going to come in and you figure win the starting job immediately, but a capable enough backup to, like you mentioned, push him. How long is this leash? Because the schedule starts out a little bit easier, but when the calendar turns to October, it gets pretty real. So, like, how long would you classify his leash? I think he's got a pretty decent leash if he wins the job. And, and I say that to say, again, I think it benefits him that he's got two former quarterbacks that are coaching him. I think that, you know, unless the situation is just dire and he's clearly regressed or he's clearly not following through with what they're telling him, you know, I think they understand that, hey, man, we've been in those shoes. You know, you throw a pick and the fans are booing you. And, you know, I don't think they're going to be the, the kind of coaches that are going to give a quick hook. Now, I say that to say if he were to go through fall camp and TJ outplays him, 
you, you know, I think people understand Brian Harson has no ties to Bo Nix. You know, nobody can say, well, you brought in this five-star. Why is he not playing? You know, that was a former staff. So, you know, if if TJ outplayed him, then he would start over Bo. But, you know, from everything we've seen, they've really been, you know, I think they both had really solid fall, uh, fall camps. But I haven't seen anything from Bo that makes you go, oh, eh, you know, I don't know. He, you know, his job might be up in the air. So, I think if he wins a job, which, again, I, I believe he will, I think he'll have a pretty comfortable leash. And I think that they understand – that he brings a lot to the table, and that's something Mike Bobo has talked about. Really, in Bobo's past, he's not coached a ton of scrambling quarterbacks, uh, you know, a dual-threat guy, really other than, like, DJ Shockley, and that's, like, 05, and that's going back a ways. Um, but they realize that Bo can bring speed to the table, and a guy like TJ Finley, who's six foot seven, he's not going to be a guy that's going to go out there and, and be running by, you know, cornerbacks and things like that. Um, so I think Bo – you know, we'll have a pretty comfortable leash. And unless things just, you know, turn really dire, um, they're going to go with that. And the benefit, too, with T.J. Finley, which is something that uh, one of my coworkers, Justin Lee, hit on that I think is really smart and something I didn't consider, you know, because of the extra COVID year, I mean, he's essentially a a true freshman because he would have that other year. So, you know, he could very well – I think he is pushing Bo, but also you have him as could be the next quarterback and you have several years of him – uh, Bo's a junior, and obviously he could also come back, uh, you know, for senior and then another year if he if he chose to. But, uh, but yeah, I think Bo will have a pretty comfortable leash uh, once it gets into the season. It's, he's in an interesting place in his career because freshman year, I think you would say he had an adequate freshman year for the expectations that were put on him, the expectations the team had that year, and he didn't run the car off the road, right? I mean, he was perfectly serviceable. He was exactly what that 19 team needed. And then anytime you beat Alabama, granted, that was a lot via running the football. But, hey, he didn't turn the football over through a touchdown. I think he was 15 to 30, something like that. Like, that, that'll carry you for quite a while. But then last year, he doesn't take that sophomore leap. But at the same time, context matters. The offensive line stunk. He had good receivers to throw to, but it seemed like the running game was inconsistent at times. And so it's kind of an interesting place for him to be because if he has a big season, then it's like, oh, wow, he's going to come back in this fourth year. And you could talk about him in a completely different light than you did this time this year. But at the same time, which kind of leads me to, I guess, where I'm going next is if it goes bad, then you're talking about a kid that could be somewhere else next year. And I guess the best way to encapsulate that, do you think this Penn State game in week three is the most important game of his career to this point because they don't even have to win the game. But I think the way he looks in that game matters greatly. I think it's fair. I know that's a big statement, but I think the fact it's on the road because the real big thing through two years has been both struggles on the road. And it's been a narrative that has been backed up with, quite frankly, how he played. His worst game last year was at South Carolina. Through, I mean, J.C. Horn just picked on Bo. I mean, and, and uh, I know – I think J.C. wound up with two picks. I think Bo threw three. I think one of the interceptions was really on the receiver, but still there was two that was on Bo. They wound up losing to a really bad South Carolina team. And, I mean, you have to be able – if you're going to be considered, you know, among the top-tier SEC quarterbacks, which I don't think Bo is right now, uh, you have to be able to, if not win games on the road, you have to play well enough to be in contention. And, and Bo really struggled in that South Carolina game when they got in, uh, obviously, later in the year and played Alabama and Tuscaloosa, and it wasn't even really close. And, and 
So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of attention on that Penn State game. Even looking forward past that, I mean, I think that will be a big kind of progress report on how things are going. But then when they go to, to LSU, I mean, Auburn hasn't won an LSU since 1999. So, you know, that'll be equally as important is how he handles that and how they can take advantage of kind of the new era of Auburn. Can they kind of change those fortunes and be able to beat an LSU team that I think is beatable? I think, you know, obviously has talent and, you know, you'll see a guy like Derek Stingley, but, um, you know, on, on defense. But I think Auburn has got enough talent to beat that LSU team. Now, will they? You know, it just all depends. It depends a great deal on how Bo plays. Yeah, and kind of adding the another element to the paradox that is how you evaluate Bo Nix's career to this point, and I guess through three years is really what what you would be kind of wanting to view it as over these next 12 games is – he had better weapons, or at least on paper, those first two years. And that seems to be another big question mark with Auburn's offense going into this year is you kind of lose the big three at receiver. I think if I have this right, looking through a couple of statistics earlier, I think Auburn returns like nine catches for 160-something yards off the, tee, off the roster a season ago, which is kind of an astounding number. And so you lose South Williams, you lose Anthony Schwartz, and you lose Eli Stove. What does the receiver room look like? And not to paint like a hopeless picture, but how would you encapsulate what that looks like now? And do you think they'll have adequate receivers for him to throw to this year? I think bar none, really on both sides of all receivers, the biggest question. And to the point he just made, I mean, when it comes to production, really the returning guys that were the most productive are rising sophomores. So that, that kind of tell, and those guys really didn't have a lot of catches. It's like seven or eight catches a piece. Um, so that's a really big question to, uh, to the credit of the receivers coming back, Bo Nix and Brian Harson have really harped, uh, you know, on how well they've practiced, you know, how they've done through fall camp. And, and one of the guys I'm really interested in uh, is Demetrius Robertson. It's a guy that they added from Georgia. I think it's fair to say that he didn't live up to the hype at Georgia. He had moments, but um, he was a guy that started his college career at Cal and was a freshman All-American. And you thought, man, this guy's going to be something special. And he's a speed demon and a guy that can make plays, but just never seemed to really do that at Georgia. I mean, you know, the last few years he um, was sort of lost in the mix there, lost in the shuffle. So his addition, I think, is big. He, at the very least, brings more experience to a really young group. I think anyone who's watched these guys practice and watched even the guys coming back from last year, there is definitely talent, but none of it's proven. And you need guys that you can rely on. And You know, really, of those three losses, uh, as far as the receivers who are gone from last year, Seth Williams, I think, is pretty incalculable. I mean, just how big of a loss he is because that was Bo's guy. I mean, as much as they kind of – you know, butted head sometimes, which people saw that in that South Carolina game. They were kind of yelling at each other on the sidelines. I mean, third and eight, you know, or fourth down, and we need a conversion. First guy that Bo's looking to is Seth. Well, who is that guy going to be now? There, there are options. I mean, Elijah Canyons look good. Um, Sevion Capers is a guy that got hurt in the bowl game but has come on strong and, and looked pretty good too. Uh, they've got other guys, and, and Demetrius is just sort of getting up to speed. Uh, he, he missed kind of the start of fall because he was transferring in over from Georgia. They've got options, but it's fair to say none of them are proven, and, and that's going to be a big key in how this offense is able to play. I know he's a first-year head coach, but between 
spring and whatever you've seen through camp so far, have you guys been able to get any sort of decent idea of what this offense might look like? And I guess kind of spinning that forward into a real question is, like, what do they need the receivers to do? Because you do return – Auburn does return one of, if not the best back in the SEC and Tank Bigsby. There's still a little bit of question marks on the offensive line. But, like, what would you need the receivers to do in a Brian Harson-Mike Bobo offense? Like, you know, you, you presumably, at least to some degree, could lean on the run game as a little bit of a crutch. What has that looked like so far through the spring and camp? I think that that might be sort of what we see. I think they realize what they have in Tank Bigsby. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that this is a pro-style offense. They're ready to get under center more, which is something that Bo Nix has had to adjust to. I mean, he's he's lined up in shotgun pretty much his whole life and, and whole playing career. Um, but, you know, they talk about really wanting to play downhill as far as with the run game. And, and that's something the offensive line is harped on too. So I think you need receivers that can make the big play, but really – uh, are guys you can rely on, in, you know, in the in the run game that can go out there and block. Uh, so, you know, I don't think this is going to be an offense that's going to throw it 45 or 50 times a game. I think they realize the value in the running backs. And I think it's it's big that they added two running backs to the stable uh, this summer. Jordan Ingram, who was a Central Michigan guy. He's from Mobile, so a fairly local guy. Uh, and then also Jarquez Hunter, a guy from Mississippi that's a three-star that – has really, really impressed from everything we've heard. I mean, they're talking about he's already squatting 600 pounds. So, uh, for a true freshman, that'll be big too. So, I think they're willing to rely on Tank and to really let the run game do a lot of work. But uh, I think they're still going to expect these receivers to carry their weight and, and to make sure that, uh, you know, that they can keep defenses off balance and maybe work in some, some really valuable play action that uh, can keep defenses honest. Do you think they'll run Knicks more? I know it's an under center pro style thing, but they, you, you figure with what you have question marks at receiver, do you, do you figure they'll incorporate any of that at all? Or do you think you'll see that be a pretty seldom used thing? I think they'll work it in. I think there will be some design runs just from what Mike Bobo has said. I mean, that he's basically said, we understand that Bo Nix is running is an asset and, and that it makes, I think he said it scares the crap out of defensive coordinators. I think this is his exact quote. You know, I think, you know, it's a situation, I think, where something Mike's talked about is that, you know, you basically play to your strengths. You know, I'm not basically going to try to fit a, a square peg in a round hole. And I think that that, to me, that's a credit of a – that's a sign of a good coach. Now, if they actually do it is another thing. But, you know, you you have to play to guys' strengths. And, and, and as good as Bo can be throwing the ball, I mean, the fact he can run and he's got speed and, and really last year I thought he looked even faster than he was as a freshman. So I think, yeah, I think they're going to use that. I don't think you're going to see, you know, him running you know, a ton, but I think they're going to see their opportunities. They're going to let him uh, make the most of it. Out of the group of receivers you listed a minute ago, do you have a lean or just a guess as the most likely to emerge? Because it, it's kind of weird to say, but it almost seems like Robertson, the you know highly touted kid that's kind of been around the block in terms of different programs, like is he the most known commodity? Like who would you guess emerges from that group? To me, I think it's Elijah Canyon. He's a young guy. He's a guy that honestly hadn't done a ton last year until – the VRBO uh, Citrus Bowl, and he came on and was their leading receiver and looked really good. And you go into the spring, and, and he, had, he had practiced well in spring practice. But then in the spring game, he, he came out, and I think he had five or six catches. He was the leading receiver. So I think that's kind of where my money is. But 
Uh, Xavion Caber is another guy that I'd say to like, keep an eye on. He got hurt. He uh, had a foot injury in that bowl game and sort of had to kind of work his way back. It was kind of limited during the spring, but I think he's a guy that showed flashes of what he could be. Again, he was just a freshman last year. Um, I think he has a chance to be really good. And this is all probably rendered moot if the offensive line doesn't improve from what it did a year ago. But they're in a much different spot. And you made that a point in a story you wrote back in April. I think it was kind of a post-spring analysis where you're talking about the questions that Auburn kind of may need to answer or have answered from spring to fall camp. And this time last year, what, they had one starter returning, if any. And this year you have eight guys that made starts returning. Last year was kind of a weird year. They kind of seemed like they settled in on a rotation. Then you have a guy go down in late October, and things were just kind of thrown out of whack after that. So there's experience there. but I guess you can't necessarily call it good experience. Do you expect the offensive line to improve to a level that will allow this offense to operate efficiently? I think so. And, yeah, to the point you made, there was only one starter coming back last year. That was a center, Nick Brahms. So they were really trying to work guys in. And, again, I think it's fair to say that COVID had kind of affected the lead up to last year because Gus Malzahn talked about it pretty openly, too. Um, that they worked a lot of different guys because they understood, you know, that all of a sudden we might go into a week and, well, we just let lost our left guard and right tackle to positive, you know, COVID tests. So I think that that kind of hurt um, that they, they had to kind of plan for that sort of situation. And the offensive line did struggle last year. Um, but, uh, you know, they've got talent. And really when their struggles really hit them uh, was when Brandon Council got hurt. He was the uh, starting right guard. He got hurt against Ole Miss. Uh, late in that win um, so he's back and we actually talked to him last week and he was saying he's 100 percent and, and back going um, they've got options and, and the nice thing for this coaching staff uh, is that they are willing to kind of move guys around they've talked about cross training guys and really seeing who are the best five and that's been the big question and that's what we heard from fans all last year was you know, some of these guys playing tackle, you know, you know, he'd be better off as a guard. He, you know, he's not really a tackle. I don't know what they're doing, you know. Uh, but uh, they've got a chance now to, to really work guys in different positions and, and see how they work together and, and maybe see, you know, what's the most effective line going to be. And I think you, you have plenty of reason to expect uh, Will Friend, who's got a good background in, in coaching up lines, I think they have a chance to be a, a solid line. I don't think they're going to be one of the best in the SEC, but I think they'll be good enough um, to let a guy like Tank Bigsby run wild. Last thing on the offense before we go to the other side of the ball is, what do you think the best version – I know this is harder to answer, first-year head coach, first-year staff, offensive guy as a head coach, but what do you think the best version of this Auburn offense looks like? I – I'll, I'll preface it with this. It seems like it would be the classic cliche complimentary football because you do have you – know, Tank Bixby seemed like – I mean, he's a good player, good running back, but it seemed like he didn't have the depth around him last year and kind of really took a physical beating. As you highlighted earlier, they have a little bit more depth behind that. So with that in mind, like what do you think the best version of this offense is? I, I think it's really relying on Tank and Sean Shivers behind him. And Sean's an experienced guy, and if you've ever watched him, I mean, he is he is all maybe five seven, five eight, and he is a physical runner. He is not afraid to lower his helmet, which he did in that Iron Bowl a couple of years ago. And uh, a lot of photographers won some AP awards out of, out of the photo of the guy's helmet flying off uh, when Sean scored that touchdown. I think it's really relying on the run not asking Bo Nix to do too much, um, you know, letting him work with those receivers, and especially early in the year. 
um, really letting him get on the same page with those receivers and then really relying on play action. I mean, when you got a back as good as Tank Bigsby, who truly I think by the end of the year could be an SEC first team caliber back. Um, you got to make defenses, you know, pay for that. And you got to make defenses say, well, we want to stop him. And I think that can open up a window for, for Bo Nix to really, you know, not be called on to throw the ball, you know, 35, 40 times. That's just not a winning formula. That's just not what Bo Nix is good at. And, and that when you're having to do that, you're really um, putting yourself in a bind. Uh, but when you, you have the running backs that they've got now, I think if you really rely on those guys and then, ask Bo to, to throw in, in big situations and even get the tight ends involved. That's something people are really excited about seeing. Um, I think it's got a chance to be really good. And, of course, that run-heavy complementary football-ish, whatever you want to call it, is a lot more effective when you have a def- defense that can get stops, get off the field, and you're not in a shootout. Uh, you know, in most games, which Ole Miss fans are very familiar with, the latter end of that, to where they're not able to get stops and not able to get off the field. So, as we kind of transition to the defensive side of the ball, I thought that was the smartest hire he made was Derek Mason. I think the guy's known for doing a lot with a little, and not that Auburn has a little per se, but it was weird last year watching Auburn's defense kind of get pushed around because, I, I don't know, to me when I think of an Auburn defense, I think of two hosses on the interior defensive line. You're not going to have much success running the football, particularly uh, you know in kind of the first three gaps. And it was – very odd last year that A&M game stuck out in particular where it was like, I just like, this is almost unrecognizable. I think A&M ran for like 300 yards in that game. Like it was very bizarre. And that's kind of when you knew, okay, this is, this is not a great situation for Auburn or Gus. And this could spell the beginning of the end and all that. So that's probably a good place to start. He's got a three, Derek Mason bringing a three, four scheme in as every single coach ever says he wants to be multiple in it. What do you, from what you've been able to see so far, how much truth is there to that? How much odd man to even man front do you think there will be? I think there will actually be a pretty healthy mix. I mean, we've seen three-man fronts and we've seen four-man fronts. And, and the thing that's really interesting, too, is they have that edge position now, which is kind of separate, you know, and, and really the, the pass rushers uh, like Derek Hall and T.D. Moultrie. Uh, so I think they'll go probably primarily a three-man front. Um, The biggest question has been trying to figure out who's going to be that defensive tackle kind of plug in that middle. Um, We all sort of thought it was going to be Tyrone Truesdale, who was coming back as a super senior. We find out last week that he is no longer on the team, so that position's kind of up for grabs. Probably looks like another senior, Marquise Burks, is probably going to be in good position to take that spot. they got a few other guys, like Hevious Walker has looked good. The guy that Auburn fans I know really want to see get it is J.J. Pegues, an Oxford native uh, who moved over from tight end to defensive line. So he's he's in the mix. I wouldn't say right now that he's going to be the guy to do it, but he, he certainly has a chance. Yeah, that's uh, that's that you, you kind of read my mind on that one, was that loss was huge in the sense that you figured – with Truesdale, like you're okay if you stay healthy for the most part. I need you. I know you need a pretty solid defensive line rotation in terms of snaps and a little bit of versatility. But on the top end, you figure, okay, you're fine, but probably not what you're used to in terms of the last decade or so of Auburn football. With him exiting, it's it's pretty uh, it's it's pretty uncertain. I guess would be the best way to describe it because. I mean, what JJ Pagis could be on the two deep, or absolutely is going to be on the two deep, and he's never played a snap of defensive line in a game. I, 
local local field question here. What went into that transition? Was it just a, a debt? Obviously, Auburn has kind of some increased depth on the defensive. Excuse me, tight end, which is yeah. weird given that Gus didn't use the tight end a ton. But was that really just a product of that? I mean, he's a massive kid. I mean, the, most people listening to this are very familiar with that. What do you think went into that tr- position switch? I think it was a combination of things. Uh, I think the biggest thing really was depth and, and tight end versus defensive line. Tight end, like you said, they've got a number of guys. Uh, Tyler Fromm, uh, Brandon Frazier, uh, Luke Deal. Uh, they got a guy, Landon King, from Texas that is a true freshman. So you had a lot of depth there. And then during the spring, defensive line was already questioned. And then Jeremiah Wright, a kid from Selma, who was a rising sophomore, who was running with the first team, looked like was probably going to be a starter. Uh, he wound up tearing his ACL. So the biggest thing was that. And again, another factor was J.J. Pegues' ability. I mean, even before they moved, uh, Mike Bobo was talking about J.J., and he was like, you don't see guys like that on offense. You usually see them on the defensive line. And it was really saying it as a compliment, just his, you know, his get-off and his ability you know, he was saying, you know, most of the time you see those guys that athletic, that big playing defense. And I think they all recognize if we're in a situation where we, we need more depth, that J.J. is going to be the guy we turn to. And based on everything we've been told, he's done really good in that transition. We talked to Derek Mason, I think that was last week, and he really, you know, praised him and praised the defensive line coach, Nick Eason, who I'll say this too, I want to throw this in there. As much as we can kind of look at some of the hires they made on the staff, Nick Eason may be one of the better ones, and this was kind of a backup option. They had hired Tracy Rocker, who has coached in the SEC for years and years, played at Auburn and and had coached at Auburn previously. Well, then he left to take the Eagles job coaching defensive line, so they were kind of in a panic. They hired Nick Eason, who's a guy that used to coach with the Bengals, and he's done outstanding in recruiting. Uh, He's got a lot of praise from his players, and uh, he's helped J.J. with this transition, and it seems like it's going pretty well. Again, I think it would be – Probably a big ask to say that he's going to be a starter come, you know, week one against Akron. But I think he's putting himself in good position to play meaningful snaps and to be a guy that can really help along the front. If they do struggle up front, particularly against the run, would you pin that on the three down and particularly kind of the interior of that as well? Just because it seems like they're pretty well suited. They're very well suited at linebacker. And I know they've, they did the same thing Ole Miss did from 19 to 20 is where you switch from a, odd to kind of a multiple even thing where you go from that buck position to the edge position but Auburn seems pretty well suited at that edge position with a couple guys that have played a decent amount of football so like if 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 Auburn does struggle a bit against the run particularly early would, would you credit it to that like that seems to be probably the weak point other than safety I think you hit it I think that's exactly what the thing's gonna be because I don't think on paper there should be no issues pass rushing um, Colby Wooden's a guy that's coming back that had a great redshirt freshman year last year. I think people think really highly of him. I'm switching over to Edge. Derek Hall is a guy that showed a lot of flashes. I think he had something like six and a half tackles for loss last year. He, he played really well, and I think him focusing on that edge position um, can lead to a lot of production. And we've heard good things about some of the other edge guys that we really haven't seen produce quite as much. T.D. Moultrie is a super senior that has had flashes, but he's had trouble – I mean, as simple as this sounds, staying uh, on sides. I mean, that, that's been a thing when he's been on the field. He's gotten he's gotten drawn off sides a lot, and that's kind of been a running joke uh, 
with Auburn fans, but they've really praised how he's been playing. A sophomore, Romello Heights, another guy that at edge has gotten a lot of praise, but it's those guys in the middle. I mean, the, those run stuffers are going to be the guys that have to stand up and certainly have to take on bigger roles, especially with Tyrone no longer on the team. Uh, because you mentioned that they struggled mightily stopping the run. That Texas A&M game was a nightmare. And it was kind of the point when we all as beat writers started to say, you know, there's a chance there really could be a change. And, and to be fair, you know, they were replacing Derek Brown uh, from the year before. And, and, you know, those guys don't grow on trees. But still, you had to have guys that could step up. And they just didn't really have guys that could do it. And, and the, you know, stopping the run really was a, a big struggle last year. And then on top of that, you know, after losing guys like Derek Brown and Marlon Davidson, K.J. Britt, who was a guy they expected to play a ton, wound up hurting his thumb in the second game and didn't play the rest of the year. And all of a sudden you left those two linebackers, Owen Papo and Zacoby McLean, pretty much out there the entire game. I mean, if you look at their tackle numbers, once uh, K.J. got hurt in that Georgia game, I mean, they were racking up double-digit tackles every single week because they pretty much didn't come off the field. They, they couldn't afford – at that linebacker position to have those guys leave. And and it was also attributed to uh, Chandler Wooten, who is a guy that's back this year. He opted out. Uh, he was about to have a son. COVID obviously was ramping up, and he was like, you know, I, I need to take some time. He's back, so that'll be another asset. But, uh, but yeah, to, to the point you were asking about, I think the key is going to be the middle of that defensive line because they've got guys uh, elsewhere that seem to – be ready to take that next step. But we're still really wondering who are even going to be the guys in the middle of the line. That was sort of where I was going with next. We play this game on the podcast all the time. I love doing it with baseball too. If if you're gauging Auburn's success defensively and you could have one guy's number numbers for the year up front stats-wise, do you have a clear candidate to whose that would be? Like if you know his stats, you know how successful they probably were to a degree. Yeah, um, I would say probably Marquise Burks because I think he's going to be in a position to probably um, be that guy in the middle of the defense. And, and how good were they at stopping um, the run? And what, what kind of tackles numbers was he looking at? Uh, him and then the other guy that uh, said the other position that you had questions about uh, would be by Darius Knighton, who is uh, a guy from uh, southeastern Missouri State that transferred in that looks like is going to be the safety uh, alongside Smoke Monday. All uh, name he, team there. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you want to say anything about the Solver team, they may have the best names from Tank to Bidarius to Bidarius Ham on the offensive line. Like they, There's a million of them. Uh, but Bidarius has, by all accounts, practiced and, and looked really good uh, and is in line to be that other starting safety. They have to find someone uh, who can stand up back. Because Smoke is a proven guy, and I think he's done a really good job. And and should have pretty high expectations, but they got to replace a guy in Jamie and Sherwood uh, who looked really good, and now he's playing with the New York Jets. Uh, so, by Darius looks like going to be the guy. So, that would be my second guy besides Marquise Burks as far as guys that I would really – if I could look at those numbers, I could tell you, oh, yeah, things went well, or oh, maybe not what Auburn fans were wanting to see. But the first overall pick in the name draft is still Smoke Monday, though. Like, Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. I don't even know if you could really call – like, I don't even know if you have anyone else on the big board for that one. If – is this Auburn team, in your in your prognosis estimation, this Auburn defense, is it going to be – do you think it finishes top, like, top half of the league and do you think it's adequate enough to allow the offense to kind of do what it does? Because I think with the way this offense is probably going to function, you're going to need a – 
competent at best defense, probably, you know, top six-ish, somewhere in there. What do you think the ceiling is, and do you think they kind of allow this offense to, I guess, find itself? Because the schedule starts out a little bit easier, but then it gets real, real quick in October. Absolutely. I think this defense is good enough. I I would definitely say, without a shadow of a doubt, it's the better of the two units. I think the defense is good enough, again, if they can kind of figure out the – the defensive front, I think they'll be in good shape because linebacker is really deep. The secondary as a whole is, fan, you know, is is very deep. And the biggest question for Derek Mason is where is he going to play each guy? I mean, he's got the talent. It's figuring out who fits best where, sort of like we were talking with the offensive line. Um, got a lot of talent on the backside of this defense. I think the defense has a chance. I don't think it'll be the best in the SEC, but I think it does have a chance to be at, at least top six. And the question is going to be the offense, which is honestly kind of what we saw the last two or three years uh, with Auburn. I think it was fair to say those last few years besides 2020, Kevin Steele's defenses were kind of propping up the offense and, and you know, allowing them to, to, you know, stay in some of those tight ball games. Well, this might be that situation again. I think that the defense has a lot of talent, but it's going to be up to the offense to make the most of it. Looking at their schedule, it's, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, you go Alabama, excuse me, you go Akron and then Alabama State, and then you got a really interesting road test week, the Penn, week three at Penn State, and then it's Georgia State, and then it gets real. I mean, I'll say it gets real. It's at LSU, Georgia, at Arkansas, and Ole Miss with A&M coming down the pipe after that on the road. So, like, that's five in a row where you're really going to figure out, like, how competitive this Auburn team is. And without going game by game here, what, what do you view success as for Harson and this staff and this program in year one? Because just looking at it from an outsider's perspective, feel free to completely shoot this theory down or agree with it or shades of gray, whatever the case may be. Obviously, Auburn expects to get to a bowl every year. I know that's probably been a while since they've uttered something like that, given the heightened expectations of the program. But in this year, one, do you think if he gets to the postseason, it's more about how everything else looks as opposed to, you know, agonizing over eight and four or six and six? Like, obviously, you wouldn't necessarily want to miss out on the postseason, given just what the program has been over the last two, three decades, whatever far back you want to go. Like, do you think if he gets to a postseason bowl game in year one, it's more about optics than anything else? Well, I think the biggest thing is let's keep in mind that we are talking about the Auburn fan base. And, and it's you know, also- <laughs> so, so my thing is, I think, and I think this is fair. If they don't get to a bowl game, the counter or the criticism is going to be, we just fired a guy who never missed a bowl game. Right. And so this is what we're starting with. I think to me, there's different ways you can kind of look at success. I think, you know, looking at on paper, I say eight to nine wins I would consider success. And I think it's realistic that they could get eight or nine wins. Um, but maybe even looking at it in a different way, looking at those road games between Penn State, LSU, and Georgia. I think if you win one of those, that that's a good sign. I think if you win two, that is, I think, exceeding expectations. That's a great success just because of the teams you're talking about. Um, so I don't know, and I'm sure that there will be people that have varying degrees of how things look because, you know, maybe if they struggle a little bit, but this uh, recruiting class really shapes up better than it is right now. It's gotten off to a really slow start. Maybe that helps some people and says, well, you know, this year is rough, but look at this class. It's a top 10, top 15 class. Uh, when we thought, you know, for the most part, for most of the summer, it's been in the 60s, uh, you know, so 
um, maybe that would be a part of it. But I think the biggest thing to me is um, trying to win some of those road games. And I think you have to look confident against Alabama. You're not – I don't think this team's beating Alabama. I don't think people who are in the know with this team would push back on that. Obviously, they want to beat Alabama, but I think that they just have to look like they can hang with Alabama and that they're building toward being able to play Alabama close more than every other year because that's what it was at the end of Gus was when they played in Jordan-Hare, you had a ball game. But when they was in Tuscaloosa and Bryant-Denny, more often than not, by the third quarter, all of us in the press box were pretty much writing up what had happened. Yeah, I think you nailed it, particularly with that end part there, because particularly from the Auburn side this year, that you know you could call it the optics bowl, because when you kind of crystallize the whole Gus coaching change thing, he had one of the weirdest tenures, right? Because he had the whole you know the two huge seasons, and then other than that, it was kind of like, what exactly is he? But one of the things he did was play Alabama tough somewhat consistently. And when you're talking about one of the greatest, if not the greatest runs in the history of this sport, that was kind of the question with all of this, right? Is what more could you ask for? Like who out there is going to play and compete against Alabama at a more consistent rate than Gus was doing? It's not necessarily that it's rhetorical and that it's not going to happen, but it seemed very unclear that you could find someone that does. And so I don't even know how to like, I guess the best way to ask this is like, what does that look like this year? Like what, in what, what way does Auburn leave the iron bowl feeling okay about it? And then this is an impossible one to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Like how many years does he get before he has to beat Saban? <laughs> like, is it three? Is it five? Like, how does that work? I know there's other factors that go into it, but it's kind of wild. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at when they fired Gus, again, rightfully people pointed out that he had beaten Nick Saban, I think, as as much as anyone else. And then you throw Hugh Freeze in there because there was rumors there for a while that I was like, well, could Hugh get in the mix? And then pretty pretty quickly that kind of got batted down. And I think even Hugh might have jumped in on Twitter. If, I know that's unheard that of. That doesn't sound Hugh like Freeze. Hugh at all. <laughs> no, that couldn't have happened. Um, but, yeah, I think looking at this year, you know, Auburn fans are probably going to say differently, but, I mean, I think if you stay within about 17 points of Alabama, that would be considered a good sign. That shouldn't be a moral victory, and no one's going to be able to say, oh, well, Auburn only lost 13 to 14. Well, you know, get the banners out. Uh, but, you know, I, I just think that's the nature of what you're looking at. And uh, uh, and it does help that you're going to be playing in Jordan-Hare, but, uh, you know, I think that this very first game against Alabama for Brian Harson. That's probably going to be a wake-up call. I think he's really going to get to see, you know, and that's the thing. Someone asked Owen Papo the other day, are you basically telling Brian Harson what it's like to be in the SEC? And he basically said, you know, he's going to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, you can't tell somebody, this is what it's like to be playing, you know, the greatest dynasty that this sport has ever seen. You're going to, you know, they've already seen it go up against, uh, going up against it in recruiting. Um, but as far as his leash, I mean, if they haven't beaten Alabama in three years, then people are going to start talking. And I think that that's something that Brian Harson, if he didn't understand it when he took the job, I'm sure he's already gotten the memo that the guy before you beat Alabama as much as anyone in the sport, and uh, he's down there in Orlando now. They, they, did not, they did not build him a statue outside Jordan here. They said, have a nice day and good luck with what's coming next. So I think three years is fair because that's just – 
that's what this job is, and that's what Brian Harson under if he didn't understand it, he surely understands it now in this position. Yeah, and like the you talk about like figuring out the whole SEC thing. It's like on top of that, like outside of the Iron Bowl aspect of it, it's okay. You you kind of get up for this first SEC opener at LSU, and then oh shit, seven days later, Georgia's at home, and then I mean, how look a month later, you play an Ole Miss team on the road that you figure, or excuse me, at home that you figure is going to be improved to some degree, but I would imagine from an Auburn perspective, that's a game you need to win if you're going to have, you know, anywhere remotely meet expectations. And even if you accomplish that, you're going to College Station the next week. And I, I imagine that's something Harson hasn't dealt with in some time, whether it's his road as his assistant or really ever. So, yeah, like you mentioned, like it, he'll figure it out one way or another. Last thing I got for you, do you have a wins total prediction when you set it over under? I'll just kind of leave that open to you. I'd say uh, the over-under, I would set it about eight and a half. I mean, looking at it, I think I have Auburn going either eight and four or nine and three. I would have to look. But I don't think they win at Penn State. I just think that that atmosphere is just – I think it's going to be too much, and I think it's going to be a real challenge. And I think this Penn State team was one that was really, you know, bitten by the injury bug last year. So I think Penn State's going to be one of the better teams. I think Penn State wins that game. I do think Auburn's going to beat LSU at LSU, which – Again, hadn't happened since 1999, so that's that's a pretty big statement. I don't think they'll beat Georgia. I have them losing to Ole Miss. I think that this the Ole Miss is probably the team in the West that I am probably the highest on outside of like Alabama being the obvious one. I think if they can get that defense going, I think Ole Miss has a chance to be really good. And then I have them losing Alabama. I I, I just don't see Auburn being able to hang with this Alabama team. And I think anyone. Um, who has watched or knows the two programs knows that that's a fair assumption. So I'm saying eight and four, which I would say is a success. And you just got to hang tight in those games. And, you know, if they can play Georgia close, it's something they didn't do last year. And if they do uh, the same with Alabama, that wasn't what they did in Gus's last year. So um, I'm saying eight and four. And I think that if you hit that spot and do it the right way, that there should be a little bit of optimism going into Brian Harson's second year. Yeah, for sure. And those swing games, like you figure it's honestly Ole Miss because you do catch them in, in I mean, towards me, in Auburn. Because, I mean, if you look at Corral's two worst games, they came on the road last year. And that's an Ole Miss team that hasn't necessarily been there, done that in terms of having some sort of increased expectation and going on the road and getting it done. You know, you probably run into trouble if you lose to Arkansas. And then that A&M game, you never know. You roll in and take a shot. You don't know what they're going to look like at quarterback. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's certainly – right in the neighborhood I kind of had Auburn at as well. Dude, I appreciate the time. It was great catching up. This was great stuff and always. Check him out on Twitter at Jordan Davis Hill. Pages of the Opelika Auburn News, oanow.com. Never getting that backwards again. I appreciate the time, man. This was great stuff. Absolutely, Brian. I enjoyed every minute of it. Love what you guys do and just keep it up. And that was Jordan Hill. I appreciate the time as always. I learned a lot about Auburn in that conversation. I hope you learned a few things as well. Appreciate you guys tuning into the podcast as always. It's been cool to interact with people back and forth. This this thing has grown a little bit. So thank you for tuning in as always. We'll be back at it for a Mailbag Friday. I think I'm going to go solo Mailbag Friday this time. I might surprise the people with a guest. Not really sure. But we'll be back at it for the People's Holiday uh, again, thanks for uh, tuning in to the Rippy Rights Podcast, and I hope everyone has a safe and happy rest of their day. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. 
But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.